This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Pastor Freddie Washington is a pastor at the Word Church in Pensgrove, New Jersey, a worship leader and a songwriter. He has received Grammy, Stellar, and Dove Award nominations in gospel and Christian music for his musical work, among many other accomplishments, achievements in both music and pastoral work. So, Freddie, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, thank you. and I'm so glad to be with you today. It's awesome. Yeah, me too. So um, your chosen passage is Genesis 50. So what happens in Genesis 50 and why is it significant to you? There's, there's one portion that really just kind of leaps out to me. I mean, obviously we see Jacob who is now passing and it's really just kind of a, a time of mourning for him. But also I think there's a spot in there that really just always leaped out to me. And that was particularly verses 15. So if I could just kind of read a, a little bit of that. So let's just set the scene. Yeah, so what's happening? So essentially, um, you know, we've got, Jacob, he's, he's passing and he's a great man, not just seen as great by his own people, but also the Egyptians. That's right. He's internationally respected. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that people, you know, who wouldn't even believe in the God that he believes in would respect him and hold him in such high regard. And so he's, he's now passing and Joseph essentially is, you know, kind of just at this point where he's also dealing with his brothers, you know, they've, uh, wronged him. They've kind of set him on this path that ultimately led to a path of really God's provision for, for not just the brothers, but the entire region. And so Joseph is now dealing with the aftermath of the passing of his father and the mourning of that, of that time. And they, they mourn him for uh, 70 days, which is amazing. I mean, the, the Egyptians usually uh, would mourn royalty for 72 days. And they're here mourning this man for 70 days. I mean, that's, it, it's incredible to see that. But, you know, when God makes someone great, he's great. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And his greatness, even though he's a Jew, is acknowledged by the Egyptians. And Joseph, his beloved son, is now the number two guy behind the Pharaoh in Egypt. And uh, they give Father Jacob effectively a state funeral. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is an incredible endeavor. You know, I mean, the links that they're going to, to mourn Jacob, it, I mean, it really is remarkable. And I just kind of even think in our own time, I, mean, I was speaking of this the other day about how just in the season of a coronavirus and a pandemic, you know, we've not been able to have the type of mourning that, that we're used to, the type of funerals that we're used to. But what we see here in this text is that they are sparing no expense. They're going to elaborate lengths to mourn this man. And, and it really just goes to show that God, you know, he does desire for us to have a time period of mourning. Uh, you know, we, we live in a culture where people were kind of, in a way, encouraged not to mourn, you know, and just to kind of cut past, you know, sorrow for, for great loss. But this man was great. And, you know, it's biblical even for us to, to have a time period of mourning. And I think that that's something that we even see in this text, that they really went to great lengths to, to mourn this man. And, it really just kind of teaches us in a season now where 
you know, it's been kind of difficult to do that with restrictions, with funeral restrictions, but it is appropriate for us to do that, you know? And it's like, obviously you don't want to slip into just complete sorrow, but God, he does want us to mourn. And I think it's healthy. And the mourning process, it actually starts where the physicians embalmed Jacob slash Israel, embalming being an Egyptian custom, leading the reader of the text to wonder what this great founding father of the Jews would have thought if they, if he knew he had been embalmed, but he's embalmed. But then Joseph courageously asks the Pharaoh's other men, interestingly, not the Pharaoh, but asks the Pharaoh's other men, can I bring my father to the promised land and bury him in the land of Canaan? In other words, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want to be buried in Israel. And one is almost holding his breath. The reader's almost holding his breath, wondering what's he going to say when he says to the Pharaoh, effectively, your land's not good enough to bury my father. I got to go do it in Israel. I love that. I love that Joseph asks, you know, I mean, they they revere Joseph. You know, Joseph is is seen to be great as well. And yet Joseph is not, he's not like, you know, I'm going to do what I want, but he actually displays a level of humility that I think really just kind of fits completely with his entire story. It's a very interesting interpretation because my interpretation is slightly different. My interpretation is that even though he has formal power, he's number two, he's still a Jew and therefore he's still an outsider. And even though he has the trappings of power, he still has to ask the Pharaoh's men, can I have permission to go take my father to Israel? In other words, he doesn't even have the authority because he's a Jew. He still sees himself seemingly properly. So as an outsider has to ask permission, but gets the permission. And that's kind of like what's been all over his life from, um, from the beginning is just favor. You know, there's been such incredible favor on his life. I mean, and it seems like that's a great example of that. I mean, it's so funny, too, because we look at a man's life like this, and and particularly this passage feels like a culmination to me of just so many things, because he's on the path to greatness when he starts out. And, you know, he knows in part God gives him a vision. And, you know, I think that for many of us, we think that the path to greatness is very different than what we see in Joseph's life. But, you know, he, he gets a vision and ultimately that leads him to some very difficult times. You know, we see even with his brothers who essentially hated him simply for his dream. And I think that this kind of just like this culmination that after so many ups and downs and twists and turns, there's been so much evidence of God's favor on his life and God's faithfulness to Joseph. I, I love your term favor, J- Joseph, both when he deserves it and when he doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's the kind of young man that everyone would have and should just despise. He's spoiled. He's narcissistic. He's selfish. He's a show off. He's talented, but he's a jerk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no. None of us would ever want our sons to be like the young Joseph, no matter how talented he is. None of us would ever want our daughters to marry a guy like the young Joseph, but he matures and develops. And you're so right. God's favor always shines on him. So the old man, Jacob, is now dead and buried. And what happens in 5015? So 5015, he encounters his brothers who essentially, you know, I mean, you would think that after all of the events, they would be a little bit different, but they're still kind of up to uh, making up stories. And it seems to me like what they report to Joseph wouldn't necessarily be accurate. That, that's just my, my reading of it. So they say to Joseph, because they're afraid now, they're afraid that Joseph is going to, you know, seek revenge or retribution now that Jacob is gone. 
Right. So they apparently think that the fact that Jacob forgave them previously, he only did it because of his father. And now what's so interesting in that is that the idea of forgiveness was invented by the biblical Joseph in that passage. It never occurred before in the history of human thought. Like when Jacob sees Esau, he doesn't ask Esau for forgiveness. He, he tries to appease him with gifts. So there's bribery, there's appeasement, but there's no forgiveness. So Joseph invents forgiveness. So of course his brothers don't recognize it. It had just been invented. So they don't acknowledge it. No one had ever forgiven anybody. And yet he seems to forgiven them. So they don't believe it. And now they're scared because as you said, the father's dead and they think now Joseph's going to do what, what he always intended to do to them. And after what they've done to him, I mean, that would be a very natural thought to have. I mean, I think any of us, any of us would have thought the same thing. You know, we all would have probably had the same thought that Joseph is after what they had done to him would seek retribution. So they ask, I mean, essentially they come to Joseph and they kind of tell this story that Jacob told him that, you know, or essentially gave this word that Joseph was to forgive his brothers or not to seek retribution um, against them for what they had done to him. And, you know, the thing is, is that it's kind of amazing because you see Joseph at this point, he's moved to weeping. And, uh, you know, the way it that seems to me, it just seems like, man, he must have just had this thought, like, how could you feel like that I would do that? The, you know, how, how could you feel that way about me? I think that it, it's so interesting to just see that moment, you know, that moment of Joseph so moved. Really, I think it's just fascinating to see his response. Yeah, no matter how powerful, no matter how tough he is. He breaks and he weeps. I mean, that's, it's incredible. Yeah, he's, he tried to reconcile with his brothers. He invents the idea of forgiveness, tries to reconcile with his brothers. The moment they could have fear, they have it. They think he's not genuine. They think everything he was saying was just a, a ruse that was going to go away as soon as the father died. And you're right. And it just, his hurt is almost heartbreaking, right? And he just breaks down and crying. It's just really interesting to see that because, I mean, essentially he does have the power to, you know, do anything that he wants at that point to his brothers, you know, but that's not his heart at all at that point. That's not his intent at all. And it's funny because you see him, you know, saying not only is he not going to seek retribution, but that he's going to provide for them. And I think that's really powerful because so many of us would probably say, hey, look, you know what? I'll let bygones be bygones. I won't seek retribution against you. But I think it takes something so much deeper to say, not only will I not seek retribution against you, but I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm, I'm going to cause you to thrive. And I think that it's, it's powerful to see him do that. And I think it's a lesson for all of us and just in terms of how we should treat those who wrong us and, and our enemies, you know, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. So, he, so it's not only forgiveness, it's actually forgiveness. And perhaps this is what forgiveness in, is in its most robust sense. It's I will not let what happened in the past interfere with how I think about you now or with our future relationship. And we can progress as though it didn't happen, which is kind of an extraordinary thing to say, but that is what forgiveness is. And Joseph invents it and they don't comprehend it, which is totally explicable because he just invented it. And because it is so, the notion of forgiveness is so counterintuitive. It's almost divine. It almost has to come from God because it makes no sense. Oh, no, absolutely. And I feel like this is just such a powerful thought just for even the moment that we're in, just, you know, just in 
general right now together. I think that this is something that really should burn in our hearts, just this idea that oftentimes we respond to evil with evil. And that's something you can do without God. You can very easily respond to evil with evil without God. But it really does take the power of God to respond to evil with love and forgiveness and genuine forgiveness. You know, I I think that's, that's something that we could really kind of take hold of now. And I think it would just fix so many problems in our culture. I really do. Absolutely. And it seems to me that the reason why Joseph is able to do that is because he engages in an act of reframing. So when his brothers first come to him, he says to them effectively, or pretty much almost precisely, he said, don't feel bad about what you did. It was all God's plan. We didn't know it at the time, but you don't know God's plan at the time, whatever the time is. Mark, that's, that's so good because I think for us, a lot of times we really do just see some of the things that quote unquote enemies or, or people who've wronged us have done as just this kind of us versus them thing, not realizing that, I mean, there's always a larger plan at work. And sometimes if you really look back, you can see that things that happened, things that maybe you would not have chosen for yourself were used by God to propel you into the life and into the destiny that he had for you. I mean, like you said about Joseph, Joseph, you know, he was somebody who we wouldn't want our our kids to be like, we wouldn't want to be like ourselves. And yet God had earmarked him for greatness. Like that guy, God had earmarked him for greatness. And none of us know what God has earmarked us for. I think that there are things that when I was younger, I thought, and they were very real things that I felt that were from the Lord. Like, I know that God has this for me. And I thought, Maybe then I was ready, but I wasn't, you know, I I wasn't ready to handle it. I wasn't ready to really uh, kind of step into those things, maybe things that God has, has planned. And so it's like, you don't know what that path is going to be to that, you know, to being ready for that. But I think that it's important to realize that sometimes there is a process to kind of shape you and to sharpen you and to maybe get some of the things that are, are preventing you from becoming what, what God has earmarked you to become, to get that out of you. I mean, we don't know what being in a pit and being in a prison did internally for Joseph. And being falsely accused of rape, which got him in the prison. I mean, really think about, you know, what must have kind of turned in his heart and changed in him to kind of bring that runty kid into this great leader who was actually worthy of respect, you know, worthy to be revered and looked up to at that point. And his brothers don't seem to have very much of a faith in God because Joseph had said to them, or maybe not a faith in God, a faith in Joseph's interpretation of God, because Joseph had said to them, this was all part of God's plan. This, including you throwing me in the pit, was all part of God's plan. And then Jacob dies and they're like, oh God, he's going to kill us. So they obviously didn't believe it was part of God's plan. They didn't believe that Joseph was interpreting it honestly, let alone correctly. So they just kind of reverted to what perhaps is the natural state, which is being outside of God. And Joseph was trying to welcome them into God. And, and then he cries when he realizes that he couldn't do it. And think about how it seems that Joseph has changed and has really progressed and moved forward 
And the brothers kind of haven't. They're still kind of stuck in that same pattern of behavior. I mean, they lied to their father, and now they're kind of making up a story to Joseph at this point after all this time. And he's the one that's suffered, <laughs> you know? Like, Oh, they're totally lying to Joseph. I mean, 5016 is, is an absolute lie when they said they instructed Joseph, your father gave orders before his death saying, thus say to Joseph, oh, please kindly forgive the spiteful deed of your brothers and their sin. That's a total lie. That's sort of a lie. They, they totally made it up. I mean, you have to think, wouldn't Jacob have said that directly to Joseph? Why would he not say that? And he obviously said all the important things that needed to be said. Why would he leave that huge detail out? I mean, that's big. In fact, he gave deathbed blessings. One would think that would have been it. That would have been the time. I mean, if any, that's, that's the time where you say that. And, and they're reporting it like it's, it's a deathbed blessing, essentially. Like it's like an instruction, essentially. You know, I mean, you know, it's made up. You make such a profound point because it also shows how stupid lying is. <laughs> it's so obvious they were lying. They weren't going to fool anybody with lies. Most liars never fool anybody except themselves. I mean, because you're, you're so right. If Jacob had wanted to say that, he would have had to say it to Joseph or else Joseph would have thought they were making it up. Oh, Mark, that's so good. Totally. Of course they made it up. <laughs> right. Right. It's so self-serving. Yeah. And, and by the way, your dad said, don't do anything to us. So yeah, no, that's, that's so true. The one thing about biblical analysis that I believe is the Bible is a great guidebook meant to help us live better lives today. And therefore you can never presume that anyone's stupid. So, you know, the answer as to why did he or she do this can never be, they were stupid. So nobody here was stupid. So these are very, and, and we know the brothers, at least Reuben might be stupid, but the, the others are not stupid. Judah's not stupid at all. Judah's a genius. And yet Judah's one of the brothers, so he's presumably saying this. He was the leading speaker of all the brothers previously. So he's saying this, which showed that even very smart people can tell very stupid lies can be obviously false to anybody viewing it from the outside. And this is the combination of self-interest, of fear, and of lying that brings out such idiocy that Joseph, his only response is to cry. He can't argue with it. It's just too stupid. The only thing he can do is cry. Yeah. The life of Joseph is, is just so, so awesome to me because I just feel like you do see this, this actual real progression. Uh, you know, I mean, he really does, you know, change and transform into the vision that God gave him. And yeah, I mean, you do see the brothers are still stuck. They're still lying. But I think that there's, there's such a profound lesson just for all of us in that is, you know, and I think that we oftentimes see the difficulty that we go through and those challenges as really being outside of the plan of God. But like you said, I mean, it really was entirely the plan of God. And, you know, we, we even see just in the way that Joseph frames it, because he says what you meant for evil, God meant for good, you know? So he, I think that if we look at even the difficulties that we face on a day-to-day, it will help us to respond the right way to people. I think when they wrong us and when they offend us, just knowing that God's got a greater plan. And oftentimes, you know, it's not the person that we have to wrestle against. It's just, it's all a part of God's plan. He's shaping us, he's growing us, he's maturing us. And Joseph was shaped and matured. And, and it, you just see the culmination of that in this passage. You know, it's, it's pretty awesome. And it, you know, the other thing too is I feel like you see Joseph go through all of these difficulties and you don't see him wringing his fists at the heavens like, woe is me. Why is this happening to me? You don't see him complaining and you just see him going through it. You know, he's going through the process. And like we have the 
the luxury of hindsight. You know, like we have the luxury of being able to see the story from the end to the beginning, but he didn't. That's a fantastic point. I think that's another um, important fact of biblical understanding is that we have to read the story. We all can always learn new things and read it anew. I mean, it's a wonderful story for a seven-year-old. It's a very different, wonderful story when you're 50. But when we read it anew, we have to read it as though we've never read it before. Because if we read it with the ending in mind, we'll miss all of the subtleties, all the nuances, and all the guidance that is part of the process. Oh, absolutely. And it's so easy, particularly with these stories, because you, you know, you've heard them so many times and you just kind of just turn that part of your mind off that, you know, just kind of receiving it in a fresh way. But I think you're so right. Because if you know it's going to end this way, then, then how can we really struggle with Joseph when he's in the pit and try to think, oh my God, what's he thinking now in jail? What's he thinking when he's accused of attempted rape? If you know it's all going to end the way it ends, we're not going to be able to understand how he gets through it all. So we have to kind of stop ourselves from knowing the end. Yeah, because if you think about it, there were so many moments just in his life and in the story where he would have, and I'm sure he probably did just feel completely forgotten, forgotten by both people and God. I mean, you know, he's in a pit. His brothers are outside of the pit talking about him completely indifferent about their own brother. You know, he's so, you know, he's sold, he's thrown into this situation now where, you know, his, his character is questioned and, you know, he really does, you know, just, kind of honor God in that situation, though, he, you know, he could have felt even then forgotten, you know, he could have felt, but, you know, and how many of us, you know, I mean, I can speak just from my own experience. There's been so many times in my life where I felt like, you know, felt forgotten in a similar way. And it feels so easy to just be like, let me just do whatever I think to do or whatever I feel. But he's like, no, how could I do this great sin and wickedness against God? You know, it's not even against Potiphar, but against God, who it doesn't seem probably from Joseph's vantage point is at work in his life at all. And yet the fingerprints of God were all over every moment of Joseph's life, just orchestrating and handcrafting this story that I think would speak to us today. And it just lets us know that when we see God working, he's working. But even in those times where we feel like there's no possible way that God is in our storm or in our circumstances, he's still working. He's still at work at every moment of our lives. That's right. And we basically have two choices. We can either believe that God's at work in our lives or we can believe he's not. And what's a better way to live? What's a better choice? Joseph had all the reason to believe, as you point out, at several points, that God had either abandoned him or was never there to begin with. And at the end, and only at the end, is it clear, and not even at the end of his life, but when he's seemingly in middle age, but only when he achieves significant maturity, does he realize that God's been with me all along. And the Bible is our great guidebook, so it would make absolutely no sense for God to be with Joseph and not with us. It would be ridiculous, and the Bible's not ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be our guidebook. God's with Joseph every step of the way. And he's with a lot of other people too. But the most interesting person he's with is Joseph. If he wasn't with us, what would be the point of reading the story? There'd be no point. We shouldn't read the Bible. Right. (laughs) You see Joseph's life and it doesn't look like a straight line. It's just a zigzag up and down, you know, set of events. And yet the whole thing is God the whole time. The zigzag is such, it's almost like it's exaggerated. He ends in a pit with no water. It says the pit with no water, like you can't go any lower than being in a pit with no water. It's like God's emphasizing, okay, like I'm going to put him as low 
as I possibly can. So no matter how low you are, you're not lower than Joseph. And then I'm going to throw him in prison and basically lock the door and throw away the key. And how does he get out? Only because he interprets the dream of one guy who then goes back to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh years later has the, the improbability of that circumstances. There's no set of probabilities that would project the outcome. And before that, that guy forgot him. Exactly. For two years. For two years. And he had to have feeling, felt completely abandoned the entire time. And yet all the while there was a plan at work that would eventually come to fruition. And how, how would he know that? There's just no way. And the Joseph story is the longest story in Genesis, which I think is one of the reasons this is God's way of telling us is I have a plan for you. Act accordingly and you'll be acting in accordance with my plan. Now, like we learned in Esther, you can choose not to. You know, when Mordecai says to Esther, redemption will come another way. Like it can come through you or it can come another way. Like God's will will be done. But each of us is given this awesome opportunity to help God fulfill it. Oh, such a good point. Yeah. Well, Freddie, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about this uh, extraordinary text of Genesis 50, 15 and, and all that comes before and after it. Now, the concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story of, he said, I ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Freddie, in all your years of being a pastor and a Christian musician, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? You know, I think that really just learned that it's so hard for us to remember just that God's with us in the day-to-day. You know, like it's almost like every single day you've got to trust him for, for new mercies. And that's very hard, I think. Uh, it's a lot easier to just kind of forget and to fear, but God's with us every single day. And another thing that I realized too, just I think one, one big one for me is just that he's given us really everything that we need to do all that he's called us to do. And when we say yes to him, when we just give him, you know, everything we've got, it's just a better way to live life. There's nothing that can just really, you know, break you and hold you down when you just say, God, you can have every, every part of my life, everything I've got, it's yours. It's just, I think that's, that's the best way to live. The person who really exemplified, Freddie, exactly what you're saying, just what it's like to live a life that you just give completely to God is Martin Luther King. And I think we can see this in what turned out to be his final speech when he said, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eye to see the glory of the coming of the Lord. Is that when you do what you say, Freddie, when you give yourself to God, you fear no man. Oh, absolutely. Because if, if, if you give yourself to God and you walk with God, you will fear no man. It's like, I'm with God. It's like, uh, you know, you're, it's like a child on a playground, and then his big brother comes. He's not afraid of anything. It's like the world's a playground, and God's the ultimate big brother. If you do what Martin Luther King said, he welcomed God, and he said, therefore, of course, I'm not fearing any man. Of course. I mean, honestly, it's not as easy as it sounds. No, it's not. But it is, it is the greatest way to move forward in life. 
it's the, I think the only way to really be truly fulfilled is to just completely and totally surrender everything you've got to God. Beautiful. Well, Freddie, thank you for such a fascinating discussion and for coming on the Rabbi's Husband and for sharing such awesome thoughts. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you having me. It's such a great time. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.